0: What, what happens when we die? So some of you uh, may be immediately answering this question with an answer sort of like a, a catechism, we enter the presence of God, we face the final judgment, we go to heaven or hell. Other more scientifically minded among us may be cataloging what happens to the body. The organs shut down, there's the quick dis- decay of some cells, the cessation of breath, the circulatory system, brain activity, and the relatively rapid way in which our bodies become a source of energy for microbial organisms, and then depending on the environment, worms, fish, birds, or other scavengers. It's, it's actually interesting that among the world religions, those who come to know the God we worship, came to know the God we worship early on uh, best, didn't seem to have a really clear answer to this question of what happens when we die. Uh, The Egyptians at various points in history believed that the body that we have may one day be re-inhabited by the soul and hence the need for mummification. The Babylonians believed that all souls went to the great below without further need of their bodies. In the Sumerian uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and have the first slide here, um, the title character Gilgamesh becomes friends with a man named Enkidu, who eventually dies of a disease sent by the gods. And this is a passage from Gilgamesh. Uh, he, he's speaking, my friend, Incadu, whom I love deeply, who went uh, through every hardship with me. Enkidu, who I, I love deeply, and who went, went, went through every hardship with me. The fate of mankind has overtaken him. Six days and seven nights I mourned over him and would not allow him to be buried. Slide. Until a maggot fell out of his nose. Uh-huh. I was terrified by his appearance, and I began to fear death, and so roam the wilderness. Wilderness. Enkidu, terrified by what he sees happen to his friend's body, seeks out a man who had survived the Great Flood, and he eventually manages to visit the underworld where all souls go, but where he learns that there's no coming back from. The Greeks believed um, that the Suke, or the psyche, um, which is the soul, went to the land of the dead, or Hades, but that the body decayed. In the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament are also fairly vague as to what happens after death. The poetic Psalms uh, seem to suggest that the self or the soul might have some kind of existence after death in a shadowy Hades-like world called Sheol. Um, Job actually seems to have an idea of a resurrected future. But by the time of Jesus, there were two uh, factions, it seems, the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection of the body in a future time, and the Sadducees who believed that death was the end of the human stories. And like a lot of theological and political debates, um, there quickly became the talking points that people would post on the first century Facebook um, to uh, argue with each other about why there, the opposing argument was completely ridiculous. And we see one of these, could we have the next slide? Um, actually, sorry, those are the mummies. Um, that's fine, keep going. Uh, OK, well, yeah, stay there. Um, in the Gospels, uh, we're showing that this is not what we're you're seeing on the screen, but in the Gospels, we're showing an example uh, when the Sadducees questioned Jesus about a woman who had married five brothers, and each brother died one after the other. And The question that the Pharisees asked Jesus in this, I imagine, it's sort of like the Facebook, well, what do you think of this? Um, uh, who will they be mar- Who will the woman be married to if all three, if all seven come back to life? And Jesus explains that marriage won't be exactly like we see it as today in the resurrection. But then he also tells the Sadducees that God. Um, that when God says he is the God of Abraham and Jacob, it is because all are alive to God. And maybe maybe this means that time is a feature of the created universe and that God's in God's eternal existence, the moments of Abraham's life are always eternally present. Um, but Jesus, and here's the photo or the picture up here, Jesus also tells the story of the rich man in Hades. Uh, some of the translations today translated as hell, but it's really, there, he's using the language of the Greek Hades, at least in our the Greek translation of whatever he said in Aramaic. Um, so the uh, the gospel writers are, are referring to the land of the dead. And uh, there seems to be a, a place in Hades where bad people go, and then another place uh, referred to as where Abraham is sitting around, where better people go. Um, and uh, Abraham, so Lazarus, a poor man, dies and goes to where Abraham is, and a rich man dies and goes to the bad place. And Abraham, uh, in, in this story, um, Abraham has an identity, and he speaks, but he exists in a plane parallel to Earth, because the rich man asks Abraham, who's in this other place, to send the poor guy Lazarus to his brothers to warn him about them about Hades. So, in other words, there's living people around at the same time that this dead people are talking, and Abraham uh, explains that they would not listen to him to Lazarus even if someone to rot, were to rise from the dead. Now, this is a parable. We don't know exactly how literally we're supposed to take it. Jesus is telling a story. Uh, But in the story, anyway, there's the notion that souls who remember their family um, exist in some sort of land of the dead. And actually, I suspect that many of us think of our eternal souls' uh, future as something like what happens in this parable. They're either in a good place or a bad place um, and uh, and in a situation that is separate from our earthly bodies. Of course, we believe that Jesus will one day come back and end things on earth and bring the souls of his followers up to join those who already died and were already in heaven. We don't often think of our earthly bodies as being something we'd like to bring with us on the trip. Even in my mid-40s, I'm already increasingly aware of the rapid decline of my body. And I know some of you are probably thinking you wish you could get back into a 44-year-old body. Sure. But um, uh, I... uh, But Hamlet, who was probably younger than me, laments, oh, that this too-too-sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Um, We recognize that our true self somehow is separate from the electromechanical set of bones and nerves and blood and guts that we carry around. We long to shuffle off this mortal coil and let our freed souls enjoy heaven. But that is not the teaching of Christianity. Bodies matter somehow. But why, if our soul, our eternal self, is distinct from the body, then surely what happens to the body is about as important as what happens to my fingernails when I cut them or my hair on the barber shop floor. Why should I care if my body that I've never been particularly proud of and which is becoming less and less useful and attractive each year, um, comes back to life? Why do I wanna be stuck together like a Frankenstein monster in the last days? If what's on the inside is what counts and God doesn't care about the outer appearance, as he says over and over again, Can't I look forward to a day when the inside is all that's left? I think, and you can go to the next slide, I hope it's a lot No, there's mummies again. Okay, good, yeah. Um, That's good. Um, I I think that the the answer uh, actually is yes, that we can uh, go to this place. That doesn't mean that we don't have a body. So Christians have learned what scientists today know to be true. Much of what we think of as the self is tied to physical reactions in our brain and in our body. If you've ever watched someone fade away from dementia, you know that the person that you know began to disappear before their heart and lungs stopped working. We can alter our reactions too, uh, and personalities even, with drugs that change our brain chemistry, uh, both legal and illegal. Our, Our minds, emotions, and our emotions, the sorts of things that we think of as the person underneath. Um, is still, it turns out, the body. The brain is meat, no less than the gut or the heart or the eyes or whatever. And when we try to imagine what the afterlife will be like, I imagine that we're thinking of experiencing it with something like a body, with sight, and that I can see Jesus, uh, ears that can hear the songs of the angels. We are given pictures of feasting at a banquet, meeting those we love, uh, who, as Paul puts it, have fallen asleep in Christ. It might be that we we don't want our current body, or at least the current body that we have now, but but we do, I think, want a body. I've talked about this before here. Um, It's a little embarrassing, but when when something happens to my body in a dentist chair or sometimes even getting my eyes dilated, my body goes into panic mode and I pass out. It's annoying, but it's giving me some experiences that feel a bit on the border between life and death. Often there's a period when I'm just coming back to consciousness, but before I'm fully conscious, where there's a horrible sensation of wanting to wake up but being unable to do so. I can't see, I can't even really think, and that's the interesting thing. I, I'm, you know, I, I feel myself, but I can't really get my brain to think. It's as if my brain is turning over and over like a car engine on a cold day and can't quite start up. Eventually something clicks uh, my brain into gear, but in those moments I feel like I have a sense of what it's like to be a self without a body or even a brain. It's my hope that when the time comes that I actually do cross over to the point where my brain isn't stuck in a boot loop, that actually shuts down for good, that the self that's sort of behind that um, uh, machine will be carried to Abraham's bosom or Jesus' side and comforted by Jesus until the time comes that my new body is ready. And this is actually kind of the picture that Paul gives us in the second letter to this very church that he's writing to today in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we know that if our earthly tent, that is our body that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For what? while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this uh, very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, let's always be confident that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. They are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether at home in the body or away from it, for we must all stand before the judgment of the seat of Christ, so that each may receive what his due uh, for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. There's a lot that's confusing in that passage, uh, but there's this idea that there's a self that it's reclothed somehow. There's another picture of what this might look like in the book of Revelation when John sees the uh, picture of the souls martyred for Jesus below the throne, below the altar in heaven. John says, When he, the angel, opened the first seal, I saw the altar, uh, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they, they had maintained. So that he sees the, those that have been killed for Jesus. And they, these martyrs called out in a loud voice, how long sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. So these souls below the altar are clothed again with a garment, a white robe, um, and it seems... It seems like a sort of temporary garment in, as they're waiting for their final resurrected bodies. When the ideal form, what the Greeks called the logos and what we translate as the word, put on flesh, bodies became holy and somehow everlasting. Jesus' body didn't sit in an empty tomb like a shed snakeskin, while he walked around as a spirit. The tomb was empty and his body with the scars of his crucifixion that he offered to let Thomas touch was somehow part and an inseparable part of the, of the resurrection. It was a body that could breathe. We're told that he breathed on his disciples and said receive the Holy Spirit. It's a body that could eat breakfast with the disciples at the edge of a lake. The resurrected Jesus had a physical body that could exert cause and effect on the physical world results that would be predictable from a physical body. However, it also seems clear that his body has changed in some way from the body that hung on the cross and was pierced by the spear and wrapped in the burial cloths. Uh, First of all, it's able to walk through locked doors, um, but also there's a common theme in stories of the resurrection where people don't recognize Jesus. Mary thinks he's a gardener at first. In John 21, when he appears to the disciples, There's a weird ambiguous phrase where uh john says none of the disciples dared ask this man who are you they knew it was the lord so he's sort of recognizable and unrecognizable somehow in luke 24 the two on the road to emmaus travel quite a distance with jesus until their eyes are opened and they realize who they're talking to body of the resurrected jesus seems sort of like a facebook friend from high school who's gotten old but upon careful study you suddenly realize who they are when you look at him. But what does that mean for our loved ones? Who we put in the ground to be eaten by bacteria and worms, or for those like my grandma and Grandpa Reside that were put into a funeral home's oven and turned into ash? The dark humor of Gilgamesh, of the maggot falling out of the nose, suggests the futility of trying to preserve the body. And yet, Christians have long believed that our bodies will rise. What will be resurrected? With what kind of bodies will we come back? Paul says, "How foolish!" But and it seems like a good question to me.
1: Um, the, uh,
0: in 2014, Radiolab on NPR, some of you may have listened to. You might have even heard this story that I'm going to excerpt. Um, released one of the more ch- uh, theologically challenging episodes that I've ever heard. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Um, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And yet. Somewhere in this goo, there's, and perhaps also in our death, there's a physical fragment of us that is connected to a new cell and a new piece. And maybe that's a piece of Jesus. And, that new, and with that new piece, we grow and grow and so are raised imperishable. Thanks to Jesus's resurrection, we participate in what in Latin we call a transfiguration, but in the original Greek is actually called metamorphosis. I don't know how our soul cells that have probably been reused hundreds of times in different other living organisms reconstitute themselves after a hundred years or a thousand years. Um, I guess that's part of the mystery. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, is Paul talks about us being resurrected in Christ. So I, I wonder if somehow Christ is a sort of chrysalis that we're in. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, So, uh, yeah, if anyone is in uh, Christ, they are a new creation. Um, The new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. I really actually recommend listening to this whole episode. It's called The Black Box. There's lots of different things that we we know something happens. There's input and output, but we don't know what happens on the inside. 17th century, a caterpillar scientist cut open a caterpillar from the back uh, before it entered the chrysalis. And this is what he discovered. You're already the uh, image of the eternal. When God created humankind, he said that it was very good. And in fact, it seems like there was at least the potential, whatever potential means in God's eternal timelessness, for us to live forever. In the Garden of Eden, along with the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil that introduced the curse, you may remember there was another tree, the tree of life. And after Adam and Eve eat of the knowledge of good and evil, and so no evil, God says, now the man has become like us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat and live forever so why was it so important that the access to the tree of life be cut off you and one day in paris in front of the, um i suspect that the reason that we needed to have the tree of life cut off to us is because God understands that an object in motion tends to stay in motion, unless acted on by an outside force. Once we set out on a path, it's very easy to keep moving in that direction, even if it's leading us to a very bad place. And I'm sure all of us know someone who has become more and more unpleasant the older that they get. It's not that they were necessarily nice people to begin with, but the older they became, the more their unkindness and selfishness was, uh, 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 took over the qualities that uh, were maybe better qualities, and they, these unpleasant qualities became increasingly dominant and unbearable. And we've probably also known people who seem to be increasingly generous, kind, and loving, and a model that we aspire to as they age. Unless something intervenes, we are more and more of the person that we are becoming. And God realized that this was a recipe for hell on earth. So he cut off access to the eternal life. And Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth and Enoch and virtually all of their descendants died. Um, um, they, They knew good and evil and the potential for infinite evil was cut short. When in a weird passage in Genesis, the sons of God began to marry with the daughters of men, God sees the problems of extended life again and says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal their days shall be 120 years. God's mercy prevents eternal life that would lead to eternal evil. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In fact, as Paul tells us here, Jesus' death and resurrection means that just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be raised. Death has been defeated. Jesus implies the same thing in the Gospel of John. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Theologians debate this, but it seems to me that Jesus is saying that all flesh will be raised into a new butterfly-like existence. But there's the problem of persistence, like the caterpillar. The problem of evil in the soul that may persist even in the risen body that likely has senses and powers beyond anything our minds can conceive. In John's vision in the book of Revelation, he sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and there were open books and one of them was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their deeds as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead and death and Hades gave up their dead and each was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was found whose name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus can change us. He can set us on a path and purify us in a way that prepares us for the kingdom of God. And some have prepared themselves in a way that will allow themselves to be leaders and kings in this new world. Others of us may be on a path to be poor and without influence, because we haven't allowed ourselves to be trained and changed for the life that goes on and on forever. Others, and I say this with fear and trembling, may find that God's love and mercy demands that new butterfly bodies be destroyed in the lake of fire, which is created for the devil and his angels. We are not given a clear picture of what this means, but I say to myself and to all of us that whatever it costs us to avoid this ending, the cost is worth it. And I think we will find when we've made that painful decision of faith that Jesus has already paid the cost. We could end here, but this is all very theological and poetic. I'm talking about butterflies and souls, and it can all feel very William Wordsworth through Hallmark cards. Um, but if your own immortality is not at the top of your mind this week, let's pause for a minute and think not about our own bodies, but about the church, the body of Christ and about CDC which is also the body of Christ dying and resurrected. And some have said that CBC is a dying church, and of course it is. All things in the world will pass away. We are mortal creatures dying individually and collectively. CBC, like all gatherings of believers, will one day cease to be, or it's possible that the organization will remain incorporated until Jesus comes back and local churches are transformed in the twinkling of an eye into the uncountable multitude before the throne of God and I might live to the end of days as well, but um, we, will not, we may not all die, but we will all be changed. If things take the natural course here, if we keep insisting to keep the body on the table, watching it, even after its living function has ceased, a maggot may fall out of its nose. But if we as an individual immortal souls in the yellow group of the chrysalis remain as flexible as stem cells, we may find ourselves rearranged into a more glorious body than ever existed before. The cells and the eyes of this caterpillar may be the rear end of the butterfly to come. And those of us who've taken leadership positions may find that we must reorient ourselves to new less influential positions in the new body. The authority, leadership, and influence of the caterpillar uh, might follow the brain of a new creation, but we are one body and the head is Christ. And as we wait to be clothed with our new bodies, both individually and corporately, let's prepare to wear the clothes, the new clothes that Jesus has to give us. In J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan, uh, some of you may know this story, the first thing Peter must do when Wendy, Michael, and John, who come from the nursery fly to Neverland, um, the first thing that Peter must do is fit them to a tree, which is going to be their home in Neverland. Barry writes, one of the first things Peter did the next day was to measure Wendy and John and Michael for hollow trees. Hook, you remember, Captain Hook had sneered at the boys for thinking they each needed one tree apiece. But this was ignorance, for unless your tree fitted you, it was difficult to go down in and back up. No two boys are quite the same size, and once you're fitted, you drew in your breath at the top and down you went at exactly the right speed. Uh, While to ascend, you drew in and let out your breath alternately and wiggled up. Of course, once you've masterminded the action, you're able to do these things without thinking of them and nothing can be more graceful, but you simply must fit. And Peter measures you for your tree carefully as for a suit of clothes. The the only difference is that clothes are made to fit you, while you have to be made to fit the tree. Usually it's done quite easily, as by wearing too many garments or too few, but if you are bumpy in awkward places, or if the only available tree is an odd shape, Peter does some things to you, and after that you fit. And once you fit, great care must be taken to go on fitting. We have an idea of the housing or clothing that we have to fit into in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if you have any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's a timeless ensemble. Let us take great care that we may fit these new clothes. According to the ads that Facebook thinks I care about, some folks today are trying to uh, exercise and lose weight to get ready for a new beach body. What do you need to do or what is Jesus doing to you to get you ready to fit your new clothing?